2, God's word says this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Please be seated. And let's pray and ask the Lord's help this morning. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we are able to be here this morning together in your presence to look and examine, having worshipped you and confessed our sins and participated in worship. Lord, help this portion of our worship service as we attend to your word. May your Holy Spirit be evident in our lives as we do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, usually, the way it's gone the past few years, except for last year, which was a different type of a year, usually we have come through an Advent series. We've we've talked about Christmas. Then we're approaching the new year. And I try to find something just to set the the new year... uh, uh, right for us, to get us ready. I know some of you uh, don't, uh, uh, like like some of us are, are, are big New Year's fans. We like the new calendar, uh, the clean start, the fresh page, all of that. Uh, some of us are really with it. Some of you are, are probably rightly cynical, and it's just another day, and every day is a new day and a fresh calendar. Uh, well, I'm one of these new, new year, new day, new start type uh, people. And usually there's one sermon that sets the stage, and then we start into another book of the Bible, or we have a new study going. Uh, this year will be a little different. This year will be a good six to eight weeks of a New Year message. This is going to be uh, something that we need. Uh, we are in uh, crisis as a nation and as a world. Christians need to, to know how we can negotiate this. We need to know how we can stand what has been in the past and what is quite likely coming. There is uncertainty, is there not? People are on edge. Anger. Just 
random anger unless they're just now starting to report these things. But it just seems like people uh, are at their bursting point. The uh, quiet life of desperation that somebody wrote about, uh, uh, the movie where they said, go to the window and yell that you're mad and you can't take it anymore, uh, that is just coming out and people have lost all sense of decorum and politeness. Watch an old baseball game. Uh, Here's 1977. Here's the Dodgers and the Yankees. And Steve Garvey gets called out when he's safe. And he gives a little quiet protest and he just walks to the dugout. You don't see that anymore. Uh, You see parents of youth teams hauling off and just hitting the referees. You see people nuts over the littlest things like they're ready to break. It's not that this is brand new. Uh, I just think it seems more widespread. I I knew a man who, before he was a believer, uh, said that he used to have such anger issues and he couldn't really, he analyzed it later, he couldn't put the anger where it it needed to be and he couldn't do it in the right way, so he would drive around at night with a crowbar beside him in the car just hoping there was some kind of an incident, some kind of a fender bender, some kind of a reason for him to get out and just pound somebody. And you're starting to see these random anger attacks in this world. Crime is way up in major cities. Record-setting murders across our nation. Smash and grabs. You don't want your business being advertised in a little featurette on, on the TV and the news because the next day they come and break your windows down and steal all your merchandise. you got to be incognito. Uh, what kind of a place is this? Every time we hear the word inflation, it's accompanied by phrases like 30-year high, uh, sometimes all-time high. It accompanies words like recession. One of our politicians made a mistake and used the word malaise. Everybody said she shouldn't have done that. That just reminds us of other times with malaise uh, being the, the, the watchword. And there's just a gloominess, it seems like, and people are saying, what's going to happen? Consumer confidence, low. Deaths associated with COVID more last year than the prior year. Hypocrisy among our lawmakers, unrest, anger being stirred up. And we are Christians. How do we as Christians adopted into God's family, how do we respond? Salt of the world, light, city on a hill. How do we do this? It, it, it really, how do we not succumb and get caught up in what's going on? It's easy to do. So for the next several weeks, a sermon series taking various passages, many from the Old Testament, some from the New, a series called God is Still on the Throne. And we've got to remember that and live that way. Just because nobody else out there that doesn't know God doesn't think like that, we are reminded in Scripture that God is the King of kings and Lord of lords. God is still on the throne.
He's not just a God from the past. He's not just an aging superstar walking up to the plate who used to hit a lot of home runs, and the announcer says, well, he can still, uh, you still have to be careful how you pitch to him because he can still uh, connect with one. He can still hit one like the old days. That's not God. God's not a God who did great things in the Bible and is now uh, diminishing in power. Not a God on vacation. He is the sovereign. He is the king. He is God who is active, not reactive. God doesn't have a a room up in heaven somewhere with data and and people analyzing trends so he can be prepared for any eventuality and to see how he needs to react. God is active, not reactive. He is also active, not passive. And I wanted to begin this year, this series, uh, in, in, in all of our hearts, contrasting God the King with all these little kings around. And, and this sums it up. Why do the nations rage? Why do people plot in vain? These kings of the earth, what are, what are they doing? Why are they doing this? So four points this morning. Point number one. And, and the, the psalm just divides itself. I'm not stealing this from anyone. I'd be a fool to not do it like every single person has has analyzed this, Um, just to be different. Uh, That'd be dumb. Not that I've not been dumb. But in this case, I'm going to stick with the scripture. There's four stanzas, three verses each. First one, King's Rage. Second stanza, verses four through six, God Laughs. Third stanza, verses uh, 7 through 9, Jesus reigns. And finally, verses 10 through 12, the psalmist advises. So the king's rage. Uh, a good way to understand psalms, if we were going to just do this study through psalms, it would take us till the end of our lives. <laughs> if we were going to do that, a series through psalms, uh, you would look at psalms. And if you want to read psalms, do that. Psalm 1 starts out very personal, doesn't it? Very much, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of sinners. His delight is on the Lord. He's a tree. He's planted by the roots. It's a very personal, uh, personal way to set this whole collection of psalms. And, and, and you have to say, since we understand the Bible is inspired, even the order of things in the Bible is inspired. And you get Psalm 1 because God wanted Psalm 1 to be Psalm 1 and 150 to be 150, and everything else is laid out. Psalm 1 is all personal. Psalm 2, then, is global. It's like a big shift. But Psalm 1 and 2 set the stage for the rest of the Psalms. In your life, you want to get uh, your politics right and your global understanding right, and you miss the personal Psalm 1 aspect of it? Well, have fun thinking about that in in eternity without Christ. Uh, You've got to get that first part right and that walk with God right. But then part of your walk with God is an understanding of how the world lines up and seeing globally. In this Psalm Two that we're looking at this morning, the psalmist asks a good question. When you stop and think about it, why do these nations rage? 
Why do people plot in vain? Nations rage, a good understanding of that is, why do they noisily assemble? Why do they get together and make all this noise? Why do they get together and just uh, rage and talk and global this and and all of that and meetings here and everybody's rushing off and we're going to do things right and, and they're all lying and, and, and making treaties that nobody keeps and fighting. Why are they just making all this noisy stuff? Why do they noisily assemble? And the psalmist is right even in that day and age. He says it's not why does this nation do that or that nation do that, but the nations. They look different, different so-called ideologies, but they're all the same. In our map, we say, well, this nation is a Muslim nation. This nation is a Christian nation. Oh, really? You've got a pretty loose definition of Christian if you're going to call a Christian nation a Christian nation. Why do the nations get together and do this? Why do the people plot in vain? And he brings it back. He's not talking about every single person in every single nation. He is talking about the leadership of the nations. And that's very clear when you get to this second verse. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. These kings and these rulers. And what do they do? They set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. They set themselves. They position themselves. Think of a good football game. Think of, um, we'll, go with, we'll go with the Steelers. Think, of, think of, uh, of, of the old and the glory days, not the new days. I don't even know. I haven't watched. But think of Terry Bradshaw and Frank O'Harris and Rocky Blyer and Lynn Swan, think of those guys. And they're there, and they're trying to get offensive. And all of a sudden, there's all this team, and they set themselves in. And you know when it's a key moment in a football game, and they set themselves, and they position. You've got big guys on the front. They're going to fill those holes and block that out. You've got these little speedy guys in the back, and if it's a pass play, they're going to block that. He's saying, in the same way, only more intensely, they're setting themselves, they're positioning themselves. And not every nation is the same body shape or the same geopolitical whatever. But you know what? They're all together against one thing. They're going to stop the run. They're going to stop the pass. They're going to stop the gain. And they are taking counsel together. And it's a strategy that is anti-God, anti-Jesus. They are setting themselves against the Lord's anointed. What does a Taliban-infested country like Afghanistan have in common with a religious-persecuting country like China? And yet, there they are, building the bases together. You know, common denominator? You don't want to be a Christian in either of those, uh, or you're dead. They set themselves against the Lord, against the Lord's anointed. What does it mean when it says the Lord's anointed? Anointed is used five ways in the Old Testament. First of all, and we'll lead with that, and that's where we, we, we see the psalm going, of the Messiah or of the Messianic Prince. 
Second one, the anointed, the Lord's anointed is also used of the king of Israel. Because that was God's church and God's people. And that phrase anointed was, was used of that. Third, of the high priest of Israel. Fourth, it was used of a specific person. Cyrus was called the Lord's anointed. Not a believer, but one that God, God used to accomplish his purposes for his people. And the last one was uh, of the patriarchs as anointed kings. The world, the nations, the leaders of these nations are getting together, different as they are, but they're getting together with one purpose, to set themselves against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. People do not want God to be the boss. God is the boss. God is in charge. God is sovereign. People do not want the God of the Bible to be in charge, and they get together to resist. It's natural for a non-believer to say, I'm the boss. Listen to this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Boy, that sounds tough. That's how I want to be that. Uh, beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And we go, rah, rah, rah. Then we stop and think about it and go, no. No, that's not Christianity. That's not what God has called us to be. You're not the master of your fate, and you're not the captain of your soul. God is not your co-pilot. God is the pilot, the co-pilot. And he's even the one that, that brings you the refreshments. When you're fighting with the other passengers, he's the one who mediates that fight. God is God, and God is everything. And he's not your little uh, buddy who rides along and makes sure you, your decisions are all right. We submit to God, not try and make God submit to us. But people get together. Kings and rulers get together. Even people at odds with each other because they do not want God to be God. All of us in our sinful state will permit another lesser God to assume the role of God as long as we think we're the God makers. A lot of us have government as our God. That's the, that's the big one these days. Government is God. Government will feed me. Government will protect me. Government will keep me healthy. Government will make me happy. Government will protect me, uh, not necessarily from womb to tomb, because governments, uh, you can't vote if you're just in the womb. You can't vote for another 18 and a half years, so you're not that important. But government will protect me and take care of me from birth to, to grave, at least. As long as I conform and refuse to save myself from this corrupt generation, I'll let government be my God. That does not end well and has never ended well for anybody ever. You're Christians. God is God. God is God, and you're a Christian. Why do these nations rage? It's interesting that Psalm 2 is quoted in several places in the New Testament. 
And so they taught us in school, don't try to shoehorn. Be very, very careful if you take an Old Testament passage and cram it in to a New Testament to fit your theology. Uh, You have to be very prayerful and you have to be very careful about this. But they said every single time when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, that's God who wrote them uh, telling you this is, this is actually the right interpretation of it. So uh, in Acts, there's three or four places where Psalm 2 is quoted. One of these is in Acts chapter 4. Pentecost has happened. They're sharing the gospel. The government who wants to be the God who's threatened by the God uh, arrests the disciples. They beat them. They tell them, don't share the gospel anymore. Uh, The answer is we've got to obey God rather than men. And so when these disciples come back to the the gathering church who are praying for them, that church got together in Acts 4. They prayed a prayer. And in their prayer, they quoted Psalm 2. Here's what they said in Acts 4. This is the prayer of of Christians. Uh, They came back and told the other believers, and this is how the early church prayed. Quote, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. All of a sudden we see from this, the anointed one that's talked about in Psalm 2 is Jesus. They set themselves against Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, not friends until they could get together and become friends in persecuting Jesus. They were buddies after that, the scripture says. Uh, To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Reminder that even the terrible things that happened, even these kings doing this to Jesus and to the anointed was still under God's sovereign control and God's predestined plan. Amen. Now they prayed, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants. First they called Jesus a servant, now they called themselves servants. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And the scripture tells us in Acts 4, the place shook with their prayers. Yes, the nations still hate God and Jesus, and they still hate the human servants, the Christians who speak the truth. And it does happen, does it not, in a mocking way in the classrooms, in a mocking way on TV when Christians, biblical Christians, are falsely portrayed. And the whole point of the people writing the script is to get people to just kind of not like those uh, dummies who are believers. It happens in a more stark way under communism and Islamic rule where things are just wiped out. But listen, those nations can rage. They will rage. That's part of living in a fallen world. These three verses, this first stanza talks about that. But we also know that it's a fool's errand that they are on. Why do the Washington generals, night after night, play the Harlem Globetrotters when they're just going to be mocked and they're going to lose? You know they're going to win. Do the generals ever beat the Globetrotters? <laughs> no. It's an act. It's a show. It's just a, they go out. But, but it's so you understand why they go out. They get their paycheck to be the, the dupes. But why do the nations go against God continually? 
Uh, what's the definition of insanity? Somebody says, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, fighting against God, but people do that. Why? Why? What, what if my neighbor was, uh, uh, I said, Manny Pacayo, boxer? And what if every day I'm just this old 60-year-old, flabby, out of shape, and every night I climb over the fence in his compound and I yell insults at him and I try and steal his stuff and I tell him I'm going to beat up his kids and I'm going to do all that, and he comes out, boom, and I crawl back to my hut and I get healed up. The next night I go back and do the same thing, boom, same thing, boom, same thing, boom. Why do the nations keep doing this? It's a rhetorical question. Why do they keep doing this? The psalmist says, I can't believe that these kings of the earth would rage against God when we're we're talking about God here. How does God react? Second stanza of our psalm, verses 4 through 6. What does God do? He who sits in the heavens does what? He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. It's like the old Superman comic books when Superman's flying and and all the bad guys have robbed the bank and they just hit him with the hail of gunfly. And he goes, hey, thanks for the hot shower, guys. That felt good. Boom. Clean him up. Why, why do you think weapons can work against God? Why can you go against God? Why again and again? And God laughs at that. How long would an actual war of weaponry last against God? What if every nation got together and they said, uh, countdown when, when the red light starts flashing, we hit our buttons, and here comes the nuclear uh, arsenal. We were aimed up. We think we've located God. And we're all going to, and everybody else on earth, you get your guns if you've got them, or you get your slingshot or your bow and arrow. Uh, you get a rock to throw at God. Give all the little kids spitballs. We'll all aim. Everybody in the earth, we're going to get God. And boy, when we get done with God, and we aim all our weapons at God, and his body comes toppling out of heaven and lands, then we know we are free and we are God. How long does that war last if such a thing could even happen? And the temptation is to say, a millisecond. Well, the answer is not a millisecond, but it could be. The answer is it lasts as long as God wants it to last. Because God is God, and God is great, and God is in charge, and God is powerful. And you cannot fight God or you cannot fight against God and win. And God laughs. A cat catches a mouse, bats it around, stuns it, plays with it a little while, bats it more, lets it run, goes and gets it, and then finally eats it. Or maybe it's a barn cat and it's not getting fed regularly. It just catches the cat and eats it, or the mouse and eats it. Uh, it doesn't matter. cat's going to beat the mouse. Kings can rage and they can put up a big fuss and they can fight and they can say, let's break the bonds. It doesn't matter. They're going against God. He says, I'm God and you're not God. Big God. Laughing God. Furious God. Laughing, furious God. What does it say about him? He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying... As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He laughs at what is really not a laughing matter unless God wants to make it a laughing matter. He says, you think you're the kings, you're going to get together? The gangs are going to get together. We're going to get together this time. 
and we're going to be in charge this time. And God says, no, I'm the king. And I have appointed my king, my anointed one, Jesus. I've set him on my holy hill. One of these commentators said this, while God... While a God who derides, scoffs, rebukes, and terrifies is disconcerting enough, even worse is one who speaks as this one does in verse 6. The I is emphatic there in that language. As for me, I, 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 I have set my king on my holy hill. The I is emphatic, and the tone must be one of cold anger. You may conspire and rebel, but I, you see, have already decided who shall finally rule your world. I have spoken, and there's an end to it. Third stanza. What about this anointed one? Third stanza is this. Jesus reigns, verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, it's possible that an earthly king said these words. It's possible somewhere in history somebody said that. But we know who for sure said these words and who these words were about. The anointed one, Jesus. We've already pointed that out from Acts chapter 4. Listen to Romans 1, 3 and 4. His son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, Paul is writing under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, so God is writing this, saying the son descended from David is the one who is the son of God in power. That's the one we're talking about here. And he says, I have been given Authority, and I am in charge of the nations. Book of Revelation. This rod of iron is interesting. Three times in the book of Revelation, it talks about this ruling with the rod of iron. It says it of Christ. It says it of the church. And it says it of individual followers of Christ. I'm going to read all three of them. And we're, we're, we're wrapping up, so, so hang with me on this. Revelation 2. 26 through 38. I think this was to Thyatira. I didn't write that down, but I think it's to one of the churches. But God says, The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Uh, Christians are associated with Jesus who gives that authority. And that ruling with the rod of iron is talking about God's people. Secondly, uh, Revelation 12.5. Again, I'm not going to break down and and give you my theory on on Revelation, but this uh, widely understood is talking about the church. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God on his throne. Finally, Jesus Christ. Revelation 19.11-16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What I'm trying to accomplish this morning uh, with us is to say, don't worry about these kings that get together and are hateful toward God and enact policies together that are anti-God and anti-God's word. And don't even worry if they come to threaten you as they've done in so many places around the world. There's a king who's God's anointed and God has set him up. And that's who we trust. That's who we love. That's who we fear. That's who we follow. And we don't have to worry about these lesser kings. The nation's rage led by horrid leadership that wants to kick off the ultimate authority of God. And God laughs and says, "Uh uh-uh, you don't say who's the boss. I pick who's the boss. I am God, and my anointed one, Jesus, is the boss. If you choose to not believe this from the word of God, you better hope you're right. If not, you're in deep trouble. Question, would you rather be one of the ones on the white horse following the anointed, or would you rather be one of the ones on the receiving end of the rod of iron? Uh, I think it's a no-brainer. I know where I want to be. I know where I hope you are. There's an old bluegrass song that says, there's a thousand choices you make every day in this world, but there's only one choice with two options that will last for eternity. leads us to the final stanza of the poem which is the psalmist's advice very good advice verses 10 through 12 now therefore O kings be wise be warned O rulers of the earth serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled and finally beautiful words Uh, take these words this is this you're going to going to tattoo something on your heart take this last sentence Uh, blessed are all who take refuge in him his advice for the kings of the earth for the nations is the same advice as in psalm one submit come under the authority of the lord look at the lord kiss the sun cowering in fear won't do you any good Ignoring your danger from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords doesn't do any good either. The word of advice from God through the psalmist is this. Submit. Bow. Worship. Kneel at the foot of the cross and don't bring anything. Don't say, God, if you save me, i got a lot to bring to the table. No. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Right? You come and you submit to God. Stop being an enemy. Become a friend. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than the man lie down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you keep my commandments. And then we say, well, I can't even keep all those commandments. He says, I, I kept those. 
and I died for your failures. You come to Christ. You come to the cross. You come to Jesus. You repent, and you say, I, I'm, I'm putting my faith in Jesus. I, I'm going to be a Christian. God, I'm going to be a Christian. Help me to be a Christian. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Understand what the Bible says about the Son. It says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Men are reading this book, and I've read it with a pastor's group, and we've talked, and there's discussions over it. It's not super controversial, but there's a little bit. It's the book that we handed out to everybody called Gentle and Lowly. It's a great book, and people go, well... Jesus did describe himself. Come unto me. Uh, I'm, I'm gentle. How, how did he self-describe? I'm gentle and lowly. Come to me. Uh, if you're in Christ, that's his face toward you. If you're outside of Christ, that's not his face toward you. Okay? Kiss the sun. Re-up. Hard times coming anyway for everybody. Better to be a Christian who's anchored in God and your understanding of God as the, as the ultimate sovereign. Better to face these times with that truth than to try and get through it yourself or with somebody else's wisdom, quote-unquote. Hey, you can trust the CDC. They only change their opinion about twice every day, don't they? Uh, who, who can you trust? Well, you can trust God. Anchor to God. And there is truth and there is science because God made that. But somebody who hates God's definition of it uh, may not be the place to start. There is such a thing as settled science. God did it. So listen, as we, as we close, the application, the one, the, the very best one and the most important one is this. If you're not a Christian, figure it out. Become a Christian. Repent, place your faith in Jesus, and, 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 and follow him. But now for us who are Christians, there's a word in here for us. And that's this. Remember who's the real king. Don't be frightened. There's one God, and then there are a bunch of imposters. Your God is God. Since he saved you, forgave you, adopted you, Put your name in the Lamb's book of life. Is preparing a place for you. Will come again to receive you to, to himself. There is no need to feel threatened by these fake gods that are out there and their fake rules and their fake power. You are a child of the king. You are referred to as an anointed one. In this passage, in the next several weeks, a reminder that God is still on the throne. Listen to this, and then we go to the table. Have you started for glory in heaven? Have you left this old world far behind? In your heart is the comforter dwelling? Can you say, praise the Lord, he is mine? Have the ones that once walked on the highway gone back and you seem all alone? Keep your eyes on the prize for the home in the skies. God is still on the throne. Burdened soul, is your heart growing weary with the toil and the heat of the day? Does it seem that your path is more thorny as you journey along on life's way? Go away and in secret before him, tell your grief to the Savior alone. He will lighten your care, for he still answers prayer. God is still on the throne.
may live in a tent or a cottage, unnoticed by those who pass by. But a mansion for you he is building in that beautiful city on high. It will outshine the wealth and splendor of the richest on earth we have known. He's the architect true, and he's building for you. God is still on the throne. He's coming again, is the promise, to disciples when he went away. In like manner as he has gone from you, you will see him returning someday. Does his tarrying cause you to wonder? Does it seem he's forgotten his own? His promise is true. He is coming for you. God is still on the throne. And in the chorus of that song, God is still on the throne, and he will remember his own. Though trials may press us and burdens distress us, he never will leave us alone. God is still on the throne. He never forsaketh his own. His promise is true. He will not forget you. God is still on the throne. Thank God for your king. All hail, king. I want to serve you, king. Thank you that you are a loving king. Thank you that you are a forgiving king. Thank you that you are an embracing king. Thank you that everybody who comes to you, king, you will in no wise cast out. What a wonderful king we get to serve. Don't let these other stupid kings out here that set themselves up that are playing king of the mountain on a dunghill, uh, uh, intimidate you. You're a Christian. You've got a king. He's on the throne, and he remembers you. Let us pray. God, thank you for this reminder from Psalm 2. There are kings that rage. There are nations that rage. Thank you for your response, your laughing response, and your sure response. And thank you for setting up King Jesus as our king. And Lord, help us in our times where we get overcome by fear and worry. And we admit it. Thank you for the reminders, uh, even in passages like this and sermons like this, that we get reminded that you, O Lord, are God. And nothing else and no one else is. Thank you for Jesus and thank you for the kind of king he is who died in our place and who bore the wrath of the Father in our stead. In Jesus' name, amen.